So we're going to read from 2 Corinthians today. It's on the wall. We're going to read um, from chapter 3, verse 7, through to chapter 4, verse 6. Now, if the ministry of death, carved in letters on stone, came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of its glory, which was being brought to an end, will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? For if there was glory in the ministry of condemnation, the ministry of righteousness must far exceed it in glory. Indeed, in this case, What once had glory has come to have no glory at all because of the glory that surpasses it. For if what was being brought to an end came with glory, much more will what is permanent have glory. Since we have such a hope, we are very bold, not like Moses, who would put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. But their minds were hardened, for to this day, When they read the Old Covenant, that same veil remains unlifted, because only through Christ is it taken away. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Therefore, having this ministry, by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart, but we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word, but by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Rachel, and good morning, everyone. It's a pleasure and a privilege to be with you on this uh, auspicious uh, occasion, the occasion of your fifth anniversary. Uh, It's a real joy, and um, I come... Um, with a sense of that privilege and uh, a sense of honor of being here and um, just seeing how um, just ordinary gospel interaction as brothers and sisters um, in God's own way and God's own time just kind of produces things. Uh, As I've just looked out at the congregation, my wife has been beaming at me. And she does that not because she's happy to see me up here, uh, but she does that because she wants me to remind me to smile. Okay. Um, so I don't smile a lot uh, it doesn't mean to say I'm not a happy person I just don't smile a lot um, yeah, I, I have one of those unfortunate resting faces 
some people have really friendly, resting faces, warm, welcoming, not me. Um, mine's the kind of back off, buddy. I don't want to talk to you. I don't want to do it. And it doesn't, doesn't reveal what's in my heart. Uh, I'm just the teddy bear who's wanting to be hugged, but my face doesn't say that. Um, actually, I'm not wanting to be hugged all the time, really. So just, just in case you might think. Um, so, uh, so thank you for that, Janet. That's uh, very kind of you. See? Let, let's just pause a while on the smile, because that's the last one you'll probably see. For the... Actually, just a quick story. In my job as CEO of Acts 29, I have to do film, like videos for, for the global family. And um, I'm always being told to smile on them. And so I'm doing this like three, four minute video, and I'm convinced that I'm smiling. But then I watch it through, and there's not even a glimmer of the thing. So I think I'm smiling, but I'm not. So just bear with me on that. Okay, let's get back to the Bible. I hope you got your Bibles open at the passage that Rachel read for us. Uh, 2 Corinthians 3, verses 7 through to verse 4, verse 6. And uh, when Lucas asked me to come and uh, speak at this, uh, on this occasion, um, I try to think about what might be good and appropriate as uh, here you are five years since your public launch. Um, and I thought it would be good to just spend some time looking at the issue of maturity. Now, actually, I thought this would be a good text. And as you reflect on this text, it's actually about what maturity looks like. What does it mean to be a mature believer? What does it mean to be a mature church? Now, in many respects, after five years, you are mature. If you look at all the statistics for church planting, they'll tell you that a church really needs to get to five years before it can be considered an established church. Lots of churches get planted, and the majority of them fade and fail within five years. But if a church gets to five years, then it's reached a a level, a stage of maturity, which means that in all likelihood, barring disaster, you're here for a while. You're here to stay. And that's a good thing. So that it's appropriate. You mature. Well, what is maturity really all about? It's not simply that you've got a, a meeting in a building in a particular part of, of Belfast or two parts of Belfast, and, and you're known as a church. Maturity's got to be more than that, hasn't it? And maturity, you could also say you're mature because you've planted a church. The church here in, uh, in Belfast East has planted the church in Belfast South. And uh, that's a great thing to do. A church in five years has planted another church. Not that many churches get to do that. So praise God for that. Praise God for the way that he's blessed you in that. And that too is a mark of maturity. And it really is a very positive thing. But in and of itself, it doesn't necessarily, because there are churches that plant churches that you really couldn't call mature churches. Now, as I look out at you, that I think that you are looking, some of you at least, mature. Some of you still look like adolescents. But that's because I'm pretty old. And uh, some of you, like if you're in your 20s, you know, my, my grandson's not far off that. So I'm pretty old, you're pretty young, but some of you are already looking quite mature. Uh, from what, you know, Lucas and even Sue, from when I first knew them, there's a maturity developing uh, in their facial expressions. 
And so you're growing up, and that's a good thing. But as a church, you are no longer comprised as a, a fresh-faced, idealistic, optimistic uh, adolescence. And so I think maturity is uh, a theme that is well worth considering on this occasion. So what is maturity? Well, we're going to look at the text in a minute or two, but the, in, in, in the Latin, which is where that word maturity comes from, it has the idea of, of ripeness. So a mature fruit is a ripe fruit, and a ripe fruit is a fruit that is ready to eat. That's what maturity means, that it's reached the stage of, of readiness, a stage of, of perfection, a stage where it's kind of stopped growing and it's reached the point where it should be at. And that works with human maturity too, because when we're mature, we've reached our peak. That is, we've become something what we should be like, because we're made to be mature. We're made in order to be, and the one definition could be, an ability to respond to our environment in an appropriate manner. And I like that definition of maturity. An ability to restart, respond to the environment in an appropriate manner. Because we all know people who don't have that level of maturity, don't we? Like, I am 61 years old and I can still act a little bit immature at times when I don't respond to my uh, environment in an appropriate manner. And I have a wife who not only tells me to smile, but a wife who also will nudge me when I'm behaving inappropriately. But overall, I've learned to behave in a manner appropriate to the environment because that is what Christian maturity is, being Maturing Christ is becoming who we should be, becoming who we were made to be, being able to respond to life and its circumstances in an appropriate manner, being able to be by the power of the Spirit through the work of the gospel, being able to be the people that God wants us to be. And that's true of us individually, it's true of us collectively. As a church, as a mature church, God has a plan for you, a purpose for you in the parts of, uh, uh, parts of Belfast where you are. He wants you to be a particular kind of people with a particular kind of life, living in a particular kind of way, speaking a particular kind of message. God has placed you there to be those people. He has brought you to the kingdom for such a time as this. He's brought you to this kingdom for such a time as this. And he has given you all that you need for life and godliness. He has given you all that you need to be a mature people. Responding appropriately to the environment in which God has placed you. So let's have a look how Paul understands that. Because what he's doing throughout 2 Corinthians is expounding for us the features of authentic apostolic ministry. Now Paul was writing to a, a, a church that was a troublesome church. A church uh, that... Um, had behaved immaturely many times. But he was writing as a mature and a godly leader who was calling them to the pursuit of godly, mature, godly gospel ministry. 
And he writes to them, and, and, and he does so. And as he, as, he, as he writes to them this, I think, quite an amazing letter. And if you've never read 2 Corinthians, I really would encourage you to do so. You know, just go home today and just before you go to bed, just sit down and read it through. It wouldn't take that long, but it would bring great benefit to you. But he says things that encourage me as I'm reading them and perplex me as I'm reading them. We're looking last night at the issue of suffering. And, and this is, as I said then, the letter uh, par excellence in which Paul wears his heart on his sleeve. And we know from this that he was a man who suffered. He suffered a great deal for the sake of Christ and the gospel. And, and he's explicit about his own struggles and conflicts. For Paul, life or ministry wasn't a sun-soaked sail on a, sin, a, a sun-kissed sea. Life for Paul, ministry for Paul was hard and it was brutal and it was unrelenting. It was heartbreaking and at times it seemed like it was almost going to be soul-destroying. He talks about that from the very beginning. Chapter 1, he talks about the affliction we experience. We were utterly burdened beyond our strength so that we despaired of life itself. He knew what it was to suffer. And you need look no further than his relationship with this church in Corinth to know that uh, his ministry, there was a serrated edge to his ministry and it was more than just his skin that got sliced. But despite that, and if we had time, we'd read on and we'd find that how he, he gives a catalogue of his suffering and, and what an extraordinary catalogue it is. But despite that, you can't help but be struck by the irrepressible gospel optimism of the, of the apostle here. There's a profound sense in the passage that we read of, of triumph and confidence. But there's nothing blind or naive about it. We can be blind and naive, can't we? We can be those kind of people who say, hey, it's going to be all right tomorrow. You know, tomorrow, a new day, new hope. Well, not necessarily. You have a, a, a bad day, you wake up, and it's just going to be an even worse day. We know there are days like that, so there's, there's nothing of that blind optimism here. This is a deep and abiding confidence that Paul has after the facts have been noted, after the costs have been calculated, and after the price has been paid. There's just what, what, one example in verse 12. Since we have such a hope. This is Paul who has suffered. Don't forget that. He's not fresh-faced. He's not naive. He's not blind optimism. He's suffered. But he speaks of himself as a man of, of, of irrepressible hope. Whatever life throws at him. Whatever ministry brings across his path. No matter how many times he's beaten senseless. No matter how many times he has rocks hurled at him. No matter how many times he has his back stripped of its flesh. No matter how many times he's shipwrecked. No matter how many times he's in danger from wild animals. No matter how many times he's hungry. No matter how many times he's hated and despised and ridiculed. No matter how many times he's left for dead. No matter how many times he has to run and escape for his very life, no matter how many times people walk away from him, no matter how many times people harden their hearts to what he's saying, no matter how many times it's happening, he says, since we have such hope. And that's what real maturity is. 
Real maturity is behaving, responding appropriately to the environment in which God has placed us. And the way that we respond appropriately in that environment is with irrepressible hope and godly optimism. It's not caving in. It's not going weak at the knees. It's not bailing out. It's not throwing the towel in. But it's getting right back up. And because of the gospel, it's pressing on. But have a look at chapter 4, verse 1. And then we'll come to the three main points. But don't worry, we'll get through those quicker than the introduction. Therefore, having this ministry, by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart. Now, Paul repeats that again in verse 16. We do not lose heart. Now, that's very significant here. Why does Paul say that? Well, he says it because if you look at the ministry that I've just described you, and all those descriptors of his ministry were taken from Paul himself. I haven't made those up. I'm not being melodramatic. That's how Paul describes his ministry. And we know from Luke's description in the book of Acts that that really was Paul's ministry. Paul just adds more detail to it. But there is this very real possibility of this being a very real option, that he could lose heart. That he could buckle at the knees. Paul, right at the beginning, emphasizes his struggles. He will carry on to do so. And and he says that authentic gospel ministry, as as we were saying last night, is characterized by suffering. Suffering so intense that we are susceptible to losing heart. And there are some within the church, some trying to influence the church that Paul is writing to, who didn't get this. They thought that ministry, the Christian life, was about triumph, and it was about success, and it was about flair, and it was about pizzazz. But not Paul. He describes it in such a way that suffering and setbacks, far from being incompatible with gospel ministry, are in fact expected. They're an intrinsic feature of gospel ministry. Now, as you tell the story of the village here over the last five years, it's a story of of God blessing you, God doing immeasurably abundantly above what you've asked or thought, God answering those prayers, and praise God for that. But it is not always going to be that way. And I'm not here as a prophet of doom. I'm just telling you what I know to be true. I know to be true from my own experience of Christian ministry, and I know to be true from every other gospel minister that I've talked to or books that I've read. It will not always be this way. There will be problems that will occur that will threaten your existence as a church. There will be relational problems that will threaten to disrupt and divide. Those things will happen. Those things can happen overnight. I have a saying that every marriage is only 24 hours away from divorce. In fact, every relationship is only a day away from complete disintegration. That's just how quickly our hearts harden to one another. And those things will happen among you as churches. But do not lose heart. That's what Paul says. Paul didn't. And he experienced all those things. And you shouldn't. Because if you don't, that'll be a real mark of your maturity. So what reason does Paul give in chapter 4 for not losing heart? 
this ministry that he talks about, and we're going to look at in a moment or two, this glorious ministry. Now, I've got three points. We're going to go through the text from verse 7 of 3 to 6 of 4 in three parts. So chapter 3, verses 7 to 11, comparing the incomparable. Uh, chapter three, twelve to verse 18, imitating the inimitable. And chapter 4, verses 1 to 6, fathoming the unfathomable. So three easy headings. Comparing the incomparable, imitating the inimitable, and fathoming the unfathomable. Okay? So you'll have an idea of uh, progress as I tell you that we're moving to the next point. So chapter 3, verse 7, comparing the incomparable or incomparable, however you want to say it. Now, remember, Paul is saying, since we have this ministry, and it's this ministry that he's talking about here. The reason he doesn't lose heart is because of this ministry. The reason he has such hope is because of this ministry. And, and maturity is characterized by having this ministry. You can't be mature unless you understand this ministry that we have. You're never going to have this irrepressible hope that Paul speaks about unless you understand this ministry that has been given to us. Understanding this ministry is a vital feature of maturity. It's a vital feature of where you're going to go as churches from year 5 to year 10. It is understanding this ministry. Now this ministry is what has brought you from year dot to now. And it is the same ministry that will take you from now to year whenever. It is the same ministry. But it's understanding that that is absolutely critical. Now Paul has somewhat mysteriously in chapter 2 of 2 Corinthians spoken about being an aroma of life to those who are being saved. And a smell of death to those who are perishing. And then he says, chapter 2, verse 16, as we go into this section, that who is sufficient for these things? If this is true, to some we're an aroma of life, to others we're the stench of death. If this is true, who is sufficient for this? Especially when you realize that in gospel ministry, we have no party tricks. We have no sleight of hand uh, uh, with which we can bewitch people. All we have as gospel ministers, that's all of us here who are believers, that as gospel ministers, we have sincerity. This is what he says in 2 verse 17. We have sincerity, we have a commission, and we have a simple proclamation. That is the stuff of gospel ministry. Sincerity, a commission, and a simple proclamation. Nothing fancy about that, is there? No razzmatazz about that, is there? No pizzazz about that. Just sincerity, commission, and a simple, and a simple proclamation. And that admission that that's all his ministry comprises of, just as it's all our ministry comprises of, leads him to reflect on the effectiveness of that ministry and the sufficiency of it. Just look at the church of Corinth. In this, in this wicked city, this, this cosmopolitan and corrupt city, men and women had been won for Christ, changed by the Spirit, who were living proof of the power of the gospel. And because of the nature of this new covenant that, 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 that he preached, that commission and self-spirit-anointed and proclamation is all that we need, which leads him to reflect, compare, and contrast the new covenant, which is all about Christ, and the old covenant, which is focused on the law of Moses. 
which points to and prepares the way for the new covenant. And in the early part of chapter 3, we find Paul comparing and contrasting the two. Just look down at, uh, with me at a few of the texts. One was written on uh, tablets of stone, verse 3. The new covenant on hearts of flesh. In chapter 3, verse 7, the old covenant is fading. The new covenant, on the other hand, is enduring. The old covenant brings condemnation. The new covenant brings righteousness. And the old covenant was temporary in that it was preparatory, pointing to the new covenant, which is eternal. Now, at no point does Paul demean the old covenant, what God gave to his people Israel under Moses. No, he speaks of it as coming with some kind of glory because it comes from God himself. But the glory of the old covenant is nothing compared to the glory of the new covenant, the gospel. One was the brightness of a full moon on a clear night, the old covenant. The other was the brilliance of a midday sun. Just look at that phrase in verse 10. Indeed, what once had glory has come to have no glory at all. Why? Because of the glory that surpasses it. This new covenant, this gospel ministry, That's comparing the incomparable for you, isn't it? And now all that Paul cites in this section is a celebration of this new covenant of which he was a minister, of which we are ministers. This new covenant of which this, this church was founded upon. The glory of the new covenant. Just look at how many times, I don't know if you noticed, I thought it was quite striking as Rachel was reading it for us, just how often the word glory is used. Eight times in just five verses. You find it there twice in verse 7. You find it once in verse 8, once in verse 9, three times in verse 10, and twice in verse, uh, in, in verse 11. And, and, and so Paul is saying this new covenant is glorious. And why is it glorious? Well, it's glorious because it's permanent. It's glorious too because it's effective. The one was about condemning. This is about righteousness. It, it effectively changes heart. And it effectively endures. And it effectively gives new life. And that's what we need to hold on to with firm resolve. What God has brought us into, what God has given us in this new covenant, when he opened our eyes that we might see his glory in the face of Christ Jesus, and what he has entrusted us with is powerful and effective. So that we don't need anything else. Now, there are two things I want you to notice about that. If we believe that, if we believe what Paul is saying in verses 7 to 11 about the new covenant of which we are all partakers as believers, in which we're all under as believers, that we're all sharers in as believers, then that is going to keep us from despair and desperation. It's going to is going to limit our options and keep us on track. And if you want to be convinced about the effectiveness of gospel ministry, well, if you're a Christian, just look at yourself. Why are you a Christian? Because of the glory of the new covenant. 
because of the work of the Spirit through the spoken word of all that God has done for us in Christ and all that he has for us in Christ, which is the gospel. You see, you didn't make yourself a Christian, did you? I'm a Christian because there was a faithful headmaster at a small school in a nondescript village in the middle of a a county called Cheshire in England who did nothing more than fulfill his commission as a gospel minister to speak to me about Christ and commend Christ to me by his sincerity and his integrity. And yet look at the fruit of his ministry. I'm here preaching the gospel to you. I get to be part of what God is doing globally as churches are getting planted all around the world. I'm getting to have casual conversations with guys like Lucas who spend time in my church and in my home, which means other churches get planted. And you take my story and multiply it millions of times. And that is how God is extending his, his kingdom in just very ordinary, everyday kind of ways, but doing glorious things like establishing congregations in the east and south of Belfast that are communities of light in the midst of darkness so that the light of the glory of God might be displayed in the face of Christ Jesus. As you simply, through sincerity, respond to that commission and make Christ known by life and word. And the second thing I want you to notice is that if we hold on to this, the glory of the new covenant, then it's going to capture our affections and anchor us in the truth and secure us to the truth. Just pause and and wonder a little while at this idea of glory, which is repeated so many times in this section. It has the idea of wonder, doesn't it? It has the idea of splendor. It has the idea of, of dazzling. It's glorious. And that's what is ours in Christ. That's what faithful, authentic gospel ministry secures. So glorious that anything else fades, by, uh, fades into insignificance by comparison. You can't compare the incomparable. You want to know why we find sin so attractive in our lives? Because we're not captivated by the glory of Christ. That's why. Because somehow we have, we have put glasses, sunglasses, shades over our eyes so that we don't see him in all of his glory. And that means that the shades of sin appear more attractive to us. You see, the primary means of maturity is as men and women, young people just getting besotted with Christ. Because this is who the new covenant is about. It is Christ in all of his glory. You want a definition of the new covenant? Well, let's just go to the end of the section. Verse 6. For God who said, let light shine out of our darkness has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ Jesus. That's why the old covenant is, is, is dull by comparison. Because it's all about Christ. And in the new covenant, he's revealed. In all of his glory, we see him in all of his beauty. We see him in all of his splendor. And that is what is, and he is the one who is to captivate us, the one with whom we're to be besotted. So let's move on to verse 12, verses 12 through to verse 18, imitating the inimitable. 
Because of everything that is written about the glory of the new covenant, Paul asserts that he and his colleagues are, are very bold. See, if the, if the old covenant has gone and fulfilled in the new covenant, which is breathtakingly uh, glorious, uh, well then, uh, he has confidence to speak. And he has confidence to suffer. And this glory is such that even his suffering fades by comparison. But the focus of this section is the, is the glory that is ours in Christ, isn't it? Through the gospel, by the power of the Spirit. It's Paul maintaining his comparing and contrasting method that we, uh, he started there in verse 7. The old covenant, for all of its glory, was one of concealment. The new covenant is one of revelation. Because in Christ, the veil is, is removed. It's, and, and, and we see, and there is a both a glorious clarity in what we understand about God in Christ and an unfettered effectiveness to God through Christ. That's glorious. And that's how effective gospel ministry is. There's nothing else that deals with our sin other than the gospel. There's nothing else that makes us complete in Christ other than the gospel. There's nothing else that gives us entrance into the very presence of God other than the gospel. There's nothing else that unites us to brothers and sisters in Christ other than the gospel. There's nothing else that gives us an inheritance that cannot perish, spoil, or fade other than the gospel. There's nothing else that secures for us the living spirit of God other than the gospel. You see, it's all about the gospel. And in the gospel, the good news of all that God has done for us in Christ and all that he has for us in Christ brings us freedom. Freedom to, to know God. Freedom to enjoy God. Freedom to be a whole God in Christ and freedom to adore God in Christ. Freedom to live lives that please him, that imitate him, that reveal him. Freedom to look at, at, at him with directness and intimacy with unveiled faces. You see, in the gospel, in all that God has done for us in Christ and all that he has for us in Christ, there is God is not hiding, he's, he's not obscuring, nothing is obscured, nothing is hidden. We see his glory and in that we are transformed. Because Paul says to see him is to know him and to know him is to become like him. And that's what authentic gospel ministry, apostolic ministry does. And it secures for us. It doesn't give us an experience. It brings us into an intimate relationship. It introduces us to the person of God himself. And the more that we contemplate Christ and all that God has done for us in, in him and all that he has for us in him, the more stunning and comprehensive this transformation that's how effective, authentic gospel ministry is. It doesn't need anything more. It just needs more of the same. That's why I said what has established you over these first five years is going to be that which establishes you over the next five years. But you see, one of the problems when we're younger and a mark of immaturity is that we're always looking for the next best thing, aren't we? We always kind of want something new. And I still have a bit like that. I like new cars. You know, and you, you, you get a car and you think, okay, two, I've had it two years, maybe it's time for another one. I like new phones. 
I like new computers. I like gadgets. And, and, and with the pace of change, I can kind of act quite immaturely and think, I've got to have this latest thing. I don't know why I've got to have it. I just know I've got to have it. Because I like new things, and I, li- I like opening them up, and I like exploring them, despite the fact that within 30 minutes, it's pretty much like the last new thing that is now an old thing. But we can be like that in our Christian lives. You could be like that as a church. You could think, hey, well, we've had five years. Great. We've seen, look, what's happened. Praise God. We've planted a church. This is brilliant. But surely there's something more. And the Christian world is constantly rippling with new things, which seem fresh things, but which inevitably are things that will just lead us away from Christ. You don't need, we don't need anything more. We just need more of Christ. We don't need more than the gospel. We just need more of the gospel. We just need more of the truth as it is in Christ Jesus. And if you get tired of your pastors preaching that same old gospel week after week, If you get tired of your friends and and missional group leaders bringing that same old gospel to bear upon the issues of your life, the questions that you're asking, and the problems you're facing, well, your temptation will be to go to look for something more. And there is nothing more to be had because God has given us all that he has in Christ. He has nothing more to give than he gives us in Christ. There is no work of the Spirit that is distinct from or separate to the person and work of Christ. None. The work of the Spirit is to show us Christ. That is how he does his work. He reveals Christ to us. He makes him known to us. And in so doing, we become like Christ. We ourselves are changed from one degree of glory into another. We become like God himself. That is really quite remarkable. You go back to the beginning of the story, Genesis 3, and what do you find? Adam and Eve trying to become like God by disobeying God. And that's the human story, isn't it? We want to be God. We want to make ourselves into something glorious, to appear more glorious than we are. So we posture and we pout and we strut and we simmer. For some people, we see preaching as an opportunity just to uh, platform our gifts. We see leadership as an opportunity to get our way. We railroad people often because of a deep sense of our own inadequacy. And leaders can so easily become bullies because we are driven by a desire to make our name great. And we can do that through a variety of ways. But it's the Spirit who makes Christ's name great through the gospel. And it's only Christ who does that. And we just get by the power of the Spirit to imitate the inimitable. Which leads us on to the final section, fathoming the unfathomable. Verses 1 to 6. And we come back to that key verse, chapter 4, verse 1. Therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart. And in the light of everything he said from verse 7 of chapter 3, how could we lose heart? If the ministry of the new covenant is this glorious, if the ministry of the new covenant is this permanent, if the ministry of the new covenant is this effective, if all those things are true, how on earth can we lose heart? Whatever happens, whatever suffering comes, whatever disappointments occur, how can we lose heart? 
But a ministry of such integrity and effectiveness needs no trickery or pretense or deceit. What it requires is this sincerity that he spoke about in chapter 2. That is a beautiful congruence between uh, our lives and our words. A beautiful symmetry between the men and women that we are in our homes, in our closets, in our bedrooms, and who we are outside. That's why when Paul is telling Timothy to look for elders in the churches in Ephesus, he says you basically have just got to look for men who are good husbands. Men who know how to lead their families well. Men who are respected by their children. Men who are uh, held in esteem by their neighbors. Those are the kind of people you've got to look for. Not look for strong, charismatic people who, who are great orators who can draw the crowds. No, you've just got to look for ordinary, simple, godly men. They're the people who will lead you as elders in your churches. It requires us to live authentically. And that's what Paul is saying there, doesn't it? We've renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to temper, tamper with God's word. But by the open statement of truth, we commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. That is, we proclaim the truth by our lives and we proclaim the truth by our words. And what we say is not undermined by how we live. Now, of course, not everybody's going to respond, are they? And Paul talks about the issue of being things, people having veils again. But it's not the veiling of the old covenant. It's the veiling of the work of the devil. As we proclaim Christ, that people are kept from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Yes, we are always a savor of life and death. And you will know already, I'm sure, as a church, that there are people who've heard the gospel that have just walked away. They seem so close, but then just seem to turn and, and, and exit left. And you wonder why. Why is it happening? Why didn't they believe? Well, Paul tells us why. Because they've been blinded. They cannot, they will not see the glory of Christ. But what does Paul say? We just keep on preaching Christ. That's what we do. He's the one that we declare to the world. He's the one that we parade before the world. And when that, what happens when we do that? Well, it's like creation all over again. The God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has said, um, as, um, we're all with, sorry, uh, has said, uh, shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ Jesus. By grace, through the gospel and the power of the Spirit, we get to fathom the unfathomable. All that God has done for us in Christ. So where does this leave us as we wrap it up or bring this plane into land as the cliche goes? Well, it leaves us with a glorious and effective gospel. But it's all about a glorious and a beautiful Savior all mediated through a glorious and a powerful spirit, which is all about the glory, Shekinah glory of God. This is meant to give us confidence. Confidence as you look forward to the next five years. This is meant to strengthen your 
resolve. It's meant to encourage you. What God has done among you, God will continue to do through you, through this same gospel, by this same spirit, in this same way. It's meant to encourage and reorientate us. Look at what God has done among you and be thankful for it. How has he done it? Through this gospel, through this new covenant. Look at what the Spirit has done among you. How has he done it? Through this gospel of all that God has done for us in Christ and all that he has for us in Christ. Look at what that gospel has achieved with you and through you and for you. Look at what a work of grace and a miracle of glory and a phenomenon of mercy you are in this place, in these places in Belfast. Don't let anyone denigrate what God has done among you over these last five years. Don't let anyone dismiss it. Don't let anybody despise it. Don't let anybody tell you that it's okay, but God has got more for you if only you would do this, or if only you would go there, or if only you would grasp this latest thing. Don't let anybody do this, because if you do, you will show yourself to be immature. Mature men and women, mature churches stand fast on this gospel. And when things change around us, when storm clouds gather over us, when things threaten us and our confidence is shaken, we stand firm on this gospel. We just go back to the glory of the new covenant. And we see the beauty of the fact that the God who said, let light shine out of darkness has shone in our hearts to give us a light of the knowledge of the glory of Christ. So may this become increasingly true of you as a church, as churches. May this be what you are known for and characterized by. A church that isn't about fads and fashions. A church that isn't about chasing the latest thing, but steadfastly and resolutely running after Christ. To be a church that is known as a truly Christian church. Christ people, to be known for revealing, for reveling in the glory of all that God has done for us in Christ and all that he has for us in Christ. And then, that's what it will be to be mature. Let me pray for you. Father, I do pray for my brothers and sisters. Thank you so much for your work of grace in them, among them, through them. And Lord, please may that continue to be the case. Lord, may you continue to establish them. Lord, may there be the great joy of hearing of their 10th anniversary. And may they go on, Lord, preaching Christ, making Christ known, establishing one another in Christ, in the gospel. Uh, Lord, for uh, this church uh, that meets here, for the church in South Belfast, Lord, bless their leadership, bless their membership. Keep them from sin. Keep them from folly. Keep them from uh, itching ears and running after new things and establish them, Lord, on this glorious covenant that you've given us in Christ so that you might be glorified.